does the zebra look the way it does? <laughs> so embarrassing. Hey, focus. Is this how it went? No, it's different now. Paul, you've been on my mind recently. Yeah? Because you keep popping up in my dreams. You don't do anything, you're just there. So, this specific person, the remarkable nobody, I don't still have that experience. Do you have a picture? Have you been dreaming about me? Have I been dreaming about you? Yeah. I'm rolling. Me too. Is that the technical uh, term for when you're recording audio, rolling, same as film? Same uh, yeah, roll sound. Roll sound. I guess it is, yeah. Yeah, I have a friend that works in broadcasting, and we were hanging out last night, and he used the term SOT mm. in conversation. He's like, yeah, I, I like for my job, like I, I'll clip SOTs and I'll put them on air. And I said, do you know what the term SOT means? And he goes, nope. Do you guys know what the term SOT means? Was it sound on tape or something like that? Or Sound on tape. Sound mm. on tape, yeah. Okay. It's a thing that people still use for like... I was just about to ask. They still do that? Yeah, for like, <laughs> like news pieces and stuff. A, a clip, like an excerpt. We still call lower thirds like chirons, even though chiron is such a... <laughs> right. Yeah, what, is a, what does a chiron even mean? Where did that term come from? Yeah, I guess it's the same principle as like if you're shooting film on digital and we're saying we're going to film today, even though you're not technically filming... You're shooting on digital. We still use the term motion picture. Think about uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I That's still a thing we say. <laughs> That's just a great term. Though. It is a it great cannot. term, but it's like, th- it was back in the day when it's like you put like 10 pictures in a row and it's, yeah, it's, the, a, it's a the train coming into the station exactly. or whatever. It's a motion picture. Yeah. I, I love the archaic shit that stays around. Like the floppy disk is still the save icon yeah. on everything. True. Yeah, right. that. yeah, that's true. That, that is that. great. The floppy that's awesome. Disc. Nobody under the age of 18 has ever seen a floppy disk. They have no idea what it even is. Oh, you know. my God. That's, Think about that. That's actually right. Right? <laughs> they, they just assume it's the save icon. Yeah, if you were born to... Yeah, exactly. They'd got, see it. It just means save. save icon. I found it in the drawer. It was found in, in a <laughs> cave somewhere. Cavemen paintings. They put that meaning save, you know? <laughs> it was etched out of stone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the 27th letter of the alphabet. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's funny. This is why is this a thing? Welcome to the program. Welcome to the program. 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 We are talking about a non-Christmas movie in the midst of our holiday spectacular, but I'll play the drop anyway because I know Nick loves it. It's fucking Christmas morning. I think that mix needs more bells, more sleigh bells. Needs more sleigh bell? Yeah. You want to pitch that to SNL before the weekend's? comes sure. around <laughs> they might have time to squeeze that in here's some background for you need to play this like dubstep version of the christmas song right <laughs> it's crazy they haven't redone more cowbell maybe they have and i don't know but like i feel like they did sweaty balls like 10 times mm. but have they done more cow- have they done like a a remix of yeah more cowbell i think somebody with enough sense understands that the reason that clip is successful is like an anomaly you can't read that's lightning in a bottle you cannot yeah, but that's never that. stopped saturday night live before though nick i mean you know <laughs> how many times have they done david s pumpkins in the last five years is more cowbell a product of its time I don't know. No, I feel like the joke is pretty on the nose. <laughs> it's a it guy shaking his hips as he plays the cowbell. Yeah, well now every time I hear that song, I can't help but focus on the cowbell. Yeah, I don't I don't you know, I don't think it's like such an antiquated premise of <laughs> it's the cowbell is still a modern technology, you know? It still works, I think. Do you do it with Christopher Walken again? That's what I'm saying. I, I, maybe it's just he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> they can't get him back. They can't yeah. get him back in studio. He's too busy doing Dune. Because you can't really... <laughs> he's in Dune. That's right. Yeah, you can't really get Will Ferrell by himself without walking. Like yeah. If you, just, if you cycle in the producer and it's Will Ferrell playing a different instrument, like it's like, I need more xylophone. I need, you know... It's something about the cowbell, though. I, like, even if you do, no, I need more Christmas bells. That's funny, but I don't think... It's not... There's something so off about a fucking cowbell. I was in the marching band, of course, in high school, and we played the the song Sleigh Ride 
every year. It was a staple. I love that song. <laughs> Somehow we never got better at playing it, but all four <laughs> years there we played. Isn't that the story of every marching band? Yeah. <laughs> just You just kind of suck. And yeah, you, you just kind of, you know, you just feel it out and hope that a, a couple of the good kids are able to carry the load. Literally, yeah. And yeah. keep the thing on rhythm. In that song, there was a sleigh bell, obviously. One guy was tasked with just playing the sleigh bell. Mm-hmm. And there was another guy whose entire instrument was a belt that they snapped at the end of the song. Oh, yeah, I know. Yep. There were like those wood blocks you would play. Somebody had the wood blocks. It was bop, 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 bop. And then the guy with the belt snapped the belt. Bum, 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 yeah, that part. Right, it, exactly. That was his only instrument. That's what he did. Really? That's what he did. <laughs> he didn't like put it over his shoulder and start playing something. No, 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 no. He did not know. He didn't play other instruments during the song. Oh, no. He, and I remember, because the thing about Marching Man too is that the drummers were always like the jerk-offs that wanted to sit in the back of the room and fuck off and like, you know, hit the vape pen every now and again. And so, I don't think we had vape pens then, but <laughs> you know what I mean, that vibe. And so there was always like a fight for who gets to play the belt every year. That was like a big, it was like being first chair at the New York Philharmonic or something. So it's a percussion instrument, technically. Certainly, yeah. It's a percussion instrument. Well, any instrument that doesn't fit into the other categories is by definition. No, any instrument you don't blow in or strum, right? It's a percussion. That's the fun thing about percussion. You can punch the wall and that's a percussion instrument. The wall. I play the wall. This part of the song requires me to crash my car today, <laughs> so I need to ram it into a wall. <laughs> Isn't that the whole Blue Man Group's act? I guess sort of right? it is, yeah. <laughs> Haven't they made a living doing that for 30 years? Yeah, they made everything percussion. Yeah, right. Paint is percussion, sort of. <laughs> paint, paint is percussion, if you really think about it. It really is. Yeah. It's really profound. Much like memes or dreams. Oh, you know, oh, yeah. how about that for a segue? Happy holidays. It's fucking Christmas morning. Dream scenario. Dream scenario in theaters now. <laughs> I will. In a very limited capacity. Yes. But in theaters I, now. I, I realize now why we had to see this now and not wait till January because. Right. It's not going to be in the theaters pretty soon. No, no. no yeah. By the time this thing comes out, it'll probably be out. That means that Godzilla minus one had a more successful release. Godzilla minus oh, without a doubt. Godzilla without minus doubt. one looks like fucking Titanic Next compared to, to what Dream Scenario has the been word, doing at the box office. The, the word of mouth for Godzilla was so good. They were like, "Hey, we'll only release it for a week," and then it was so good that they were yeah. like, "Oh, let's do another week." <laughs> no, it's it's gonna be like ET fucking just sitting there at number one for a year compared to Dream Scenario yeah. and the negative five people that bought tickets to our screenings. It was okay. So my theater only had one showing yesterday at ten forty p.m. That was the only showing. There was no other theater you could have went to. There was, but I I'm a subscriber, so I have the oh, tickets and got it, got it, got it. Yeah, there were four people in my theater, which was actually about three more than I was expecting to see. That is way more in our theater, which had a whopping total of zero people in it. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, well, two. I guess that's yeah. true. Yeah, that's true. Oh, you're counting yourself as one of the four. I see. Yes. Oh, okay. okay, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, there was one lady behind me, and then there was like another couple of ladies who came in, all women. Right. Okay. Um, except okay. for me. Yeah, I mean, they love Cage. I guess they do. They love fantasizing about him on the couch. They sure do. <laughs> Boy, can you unsear that from my memory, please? <laughs> oh, yeah. Never. Uh, that was a hell of a scene. Forever. That's <laughs> kind of the whole movie for One me. One of the scenes then, of the year, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Dream scenario. It is starring Nicolas Cage as a man that starts appearing in everyone's dreams. This kind of collective consciousness thing where everybody's dreaming the same thing. And there there have been urban legends about this in the past. And obviously there's this idea of the Mandela effect and all the way back to like Jung and stuff. This idea that, you know, the dream was you tapping into a part of the subconscious that we couldn't identify, and this movie is playing around in all those ideas. Yeah, uh, Nicholas Cage stars as an average Joe, a college professor who is—I wouldn't say like a failed college professor because he's like tenured and shit. He's fairly well respected, but an average guy past his prime. Certainly, yes, past definitely, his prime. definitely. Not as acclaimed in his scientific community as he once hoped he would become. 
after studying ants for years and years and years and looking to publish his work. It never goes well. I've seen this trope before. People study ants and they think they're going to make it and then they just complete burnout failures. It's a tale as old as time. Everyone thinks they're going to go to the coast and study ants. Stop studying fucking ants. (laughs) Everyone thinks they're going to make it in the ant world. And let me tell you, it takes guts, kid. It's a lucrative business to find ants and shit. I I don't care. (laughs) Trying to insert the Zoolander joke somewhere in here. But what is this? Not, not quite find it, mate. <laughs> How can we expect them to learn if they can't even fit inside the building? Paul Matthews is the name of this professor, and the movie sort of follows his ascent into the public eye. He becomes kind of a viral sensation, so he becomes kind of a celebrity, and he goes through the whole modern D-list celebrity cycle, the 15 minutes of fame thing, where... He becomes famous and then gets canceled for it, et cetera, et cetera. It's a commentary on all of those things. I guess we should begin with what did we all think about this movie, Dream Scenario? It's it's pretty uncomfortable. Like, it's not like Uncut Gems level or anything like that, but it's fairly uncomfortable at times. A little slow, but if you like Cage, go see it. If you if you kind of iffy on Cage, you can skip it. That's kind of where I'd land. Sure, sure. Cage is amazing. Aside of Cage, we don't get to see as often the type of character he's playing. He's so good in this. He's so good. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of brings to maybe the the fundamental problem of the movie. I just think it's very unremarkable without Cage. You're so right. I mean, it was really over. First of all, it was overhyped to us when we were at TIFF. Yes. The the, the buzz about this movie was big, and it's like. Well. that's also because the movies that were at TIFF were not particularly remarkable for the most part that's this true. year. No, yeah, that's true. And it was the Cage film. You know what I mean? Like, I just think all of its exploration is, you know, at the service of stuff that we all kind of know. And it's I've seen done better in other things. I don't really need this movie. And frankly, I'm not sure the director, I don't know, had the verve to pull it off in a really interesting way. Yeah, well, I mean, you watch the movie and you're obviously thinking about Charlie Kaufman, you're yep. thinking about Spike Jones. you're thinking about Michelle Gondry, right? You're thinking about all of these guys, I mean, even David Lynch to a certain extent with the dream angle. Like, mm-hmm. you're thinking about all of these, like, really distinct visual filmmakers and also, like, colorful screenwriters. All those movies have incredible wit in their dialogue and they're weird. Don't forget Wes Craven, by the way. Sure, the man loves dreams. The man loves dreams. He sure does. Um, I don't know if it was weird enough. That was my thing, talking to Adam afterwards. I'm like, this is just not weird enough. And Cage is bringing the goods in that department, and he's really carrying this movie over the finish line in terms of its weirdness and offbeatness. But, you know, it's a movie that's kind of pedestrian Mm -hmm. in the scenes that are not the dream scenes. So, I, you know, that's the bigger problem with it, I think, overall. It's funny, Nick, that you mentioned Uncut Gems because this movie was originally written by this Norwegian guy, Christopher Borgli, who ends up directing his own script here. But the script was initially brought to A24, and it was going to be paired with Ari Aster being the director. And you see he has producing credit on this movie. And Adam Sandler in the lead role. Oh, wow. Okay. So... I'm just thinking of myself, listen, I'm glad Cage is in it, obviously, and I would love to see the Ari Aster version of this with Cage, but the Sandler version of this movie, might be better. take my money. It's tough to say. Take my money. Hard to say. I'm thinking Punch Drunk Love. I'm thinking like, oh, you know. That's exactly what it would be. Right? It would be that Mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, this average guy thrust into this strange world and, you know. He's proven he's perfectly capable of doing something like this too. I don't yeah. I don't think that's out of the ordinary for him at all. And also, I mean, the thought of Ari Aster working on this story right. <laughs> also makes me quite excited, especially after Bo's Afraid. Which is a very similar movie to this too, I would say. Yes and no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be sure. Yes and, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of a gentler Bo is Afraid. It's a gentler synecdoche New York, you know. It's got a somewhat happy ending. There's some violence, but not a ton. It's not as like existentially bleak. You think it's a happy ending? I didn't find it to. It's bittersweet in a it's way. It's bittersweet. Yeah. He ends up divorced and alone. What the fuck? There's no bittersweet. You fucking lunatic. <laughs> he, he loses everything. Yes, he does. He wears the David Byrne suit. Yeah, in a dream. City of dreams, Nick. You know, he finally gets to live out his fantasy, but at the end of the day, it's just a fantasy and. I guess I get, but also like his, his kids still like him and they talk to him and it's like, he got divorced. I mean, I don't know. People get divorced all the time. 
I mean, his life is in complete shambles. It's not a happy ending. There's nothing happy. There's no silver lining. There's no hopeful note to it. It's just... No, I just imagine, like, all those other movies, like, Synecdoche, New York, Bo is Afraid. Well, Bo is Afraid is actually pretty bleak as well. But, like, all those movies, you imagine if it continues another two years, this story, it doesn't get any happier. No, no. This movie, you can imagine him kind of going through more ebbs and flows after the credits roll. I suppose. It's the character in that sense. Like, you know that Bo's not going to be okay because he's Bo, and you know that <laughs> Philip Zebra Hoffman, you just need to put that guy out of his misery, and exactly. the movie literally does. It's, it's like, right. okay, yeah. go to sleep. <laughs> 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 it's a great ending. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, just, I just wanted more, and I guess that's like a really lame criticism, and I'm, I'm trying to articulate it in a better way. I, I just, I don't know. I needed a little more from a more distinct auteur, I think. I think there's a needle they're kind of threading here. This movie's obviously about fame and cancel culture. But they also, I think, wanted to make the point that this character, Paul, becomes famous for literally nothing. And he also gets canceled for literally nothing. They wanted this main character to literally do nothing. And that's a hard thing to pull off and keep interesting. And the fact that Cage still pulls off that performance and makes it interesting is, is commendable. But I, I think that is part of the, the secret sauce that's missing here is action. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a little bare. I mean, I we were talking about this after the show, and I think it's pretty bold that the movie actually wanted to go for this idea. Like, this is kind of a ballsy subject to attack nowadays, and I guess I commend it for that. It's just a shame that it doesn't really, you know, go for the jugular in a way that it needs to to make this stuff really compelling. It doesn't really have anything to say about cancel culture. Yeah. I mean, it, it references a lot That's of the these things, but it's not really, like, skewering it in a like really well, it, biting way. I guess it has plenty to say about sort of the group think of it all, which is the most frustrating term. And I didn't really strictly take this as a movie criticizing cancel culture. I took it as a cautionary tale against seeking fame. Sure. That's more the story it's going for, especially with that ending where again, he's dreaming about being back with his wife and he goes, I wish this wasn't a dream. Like I wish this was real. The quote unquote simple life you're living, the simple moments, that's what makes life worth living. And that's what you should seek. That's the message of the film. In other words, though, like the cancel culture is just one of many pitfalls that await you. Right. If you pursue this path. I don't think it's. And it's not really super judgmental about it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't think I think it's kind of there as this thing that is sometimes unjust. But it's like going for a hike in the woods and getting attacked by a bear. It's like the bear is just going to do what the bear does. (laughs) But I think that's maybe sort of the larger problem is, you know, it name checks Jordan Peterson and like it talks about, you know, going on a an alt-right kind of going for more, you know, reactionary career path. (laughs) You know, all of these things that are like, you know, funny little references to our modern moment and that's all like cute or whatever, but it's not really saying anything about any, you know, in a deep sort of philosophical way. It's just like, no. Our modern times, aren't they so wacky? Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is fine. Like, kinda, I wasn't annoyed by it in the way that I often am with movies like no, this. No, but it's kind of weak. It's yes, it's, it's weak it's, sauce. It's yeah, weak. Yeah, 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 yeah. So our main character is a um, evolutionary biologist. That is his field of study. He is a PhD. And there are two different evolutionary traits that he discusses throughout the film that are both relevant to the topic at large. The intelligence, as he calls it, which is like the hive mind thinking and how ants can all communicate and he talks about the zebra and how the zebra doesn't blend in with the environment, but its stripes are actually meant to help it blend in with the herd and how standing out is a biological negative because it makes it easier for you to be attacked. So yeah, that's obviously talking about you want to blend in with the crowd for happiness. And and apparently, by the way, this last guy that Christopher Borgley, he made a movie last year called Sick of Myself. And it's about a woman that takes an underground Russian drug in order to get her flesh to fall off. So she gets like, in order to seek online fame, I haven't seen the movie, but it's, it's another like very like on the nose, satirical look at like the way that people are willing to defile themselves in order to get the 15 minutes. So this guy clearly is not a fan of these attention seeking people, but then he worked with Nick cage. Right. (laughs) Well, I think that's interesting, but keep going. He also works in the movie industry. So I don't don't know. Yeah. Right. You can see the movie trying. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can see what they're going for. It just doesn't ever quite hit it. And I don't know. In one sense, I'm glad it's not hitting me over the head necessarily. Mm -hmm. I'm glad it's trying to do subtle stuff. But I just think the problem is, like you said, the message isn't succinct enough or strong enough or clear enough. Well, 
the volume of the movie is kind of down, which can make you think it's subtle. But this is a very, to me, often blunt movie and what it's getting at. Mm-hmm. And that that's sort of the trick it pulls. It's like, oh, there's something really deep going on here. But you think about it for a second after you walk out the movie, and you're like, that was the most on-the-nose thing I've ever seen ever. It really is. It's not, right. it is, to me anyway, felt like it was operating with a hammer more often than, you know, any sort of scalpel, which was disappointing. How far into the movie were you like, okay, I understand what this movie's about? Uh, I think the second the Zoom call happens. The Zoom call. Where he's like, I don't know, I'm special. You're talking about the interview? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. the news interview? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think him and his wife both say, like, we're kind of private people. We don't like attention that much. And that's right. Yeah, at that moment, I'm like, okay, got it. Anytime someone tells you who they are, don't believe them. (laughs) And that's the idea there. Um, Like, that that stuff's not, not interesting to me. I think the fact that he cast Cage is super interesting and cage talked about this you know when he first got the script because he's of course you know going off about like Jungian principles and the idea of like this spiritual energy that guides a zeitgeist in a given time he'll go on monologues monologues about that but he said the the one thing that i tapped into was my memification he said like around the you know early 2010s these montages of himself melting down and vampires kiss and and face off and all this stuff started going viral and Nick Cage kind of became a meme. And, you know, this is something that we've covered on this podcast a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. But that community episode about him being a good actor or a bad actor, you know, last year, of course, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is tapping into this. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, you know, having a love-hate relationship with the way that the Internet has responded to his work. Loves sure. the idea that he's still working and that people still knows who he is so he could, you know, pay for another island or whatever or a dinosaur <laughs> skull. Um, <laughs> but does not like that his work has sometimes been misinterpreted. Well, you need the majority of the people just help you get your message across, so to speak. But it's always going to be only a small percentage of people who really get what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's always going to be the case. So that it reminds me a lot, actually, of uh, Hate to Love Nickelback, that film and what they were talking about, because they had the exact same commentaries. They didn't like the memification of their work. But also, like, it keeps you on the radio and like it keeps right. you working. And it's, it's see, social media is such a weird thing but because the less in context the work is, the better it performs. Films are this two hour long thing with ebbs and flows and ups and downs and an arc and like (laughs) characters change from scene to scene and social media it's just you extract one idea that is going to perform well in the algorithm and so an actor like cage like that one mode is going to be extracted out of every movie we talk about it i think we just used the term on this show cagey Right. It's the cagiest Nick Cage performance. And I think he kind of rejected that idea, obviously, because I did pig, you know, I can do these more nuanced. I did that movie, Joe, I can do more subtle work. Like it doesn't have to just be, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs. And, you know, so this movie was kind of his attempt to reckon with that, with that duality of like this fame is helping me get more work and do a Mandy, do a pig do you know more like interesting auteur stuff a bad lieutenant but at the same time it's like now i've just been defined by this one thing i think it's very true and very interesting to talk about the idea that you can work your entire career doing one thing but it's one random moment that you had no control over that defines you right Mm -hmm. and you don't get to choose that moment but you get to choose how you react to it and what you do with it i think that's a really interesting topic to explore and the movie doesn't Explored as much as I would like. Well, the Michael Sarah scenes, I think, definitely explored. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. They, and but that's almost a completely different movie. It yeah, is. You could argue. There's it a is. few different movies in this, which was another, again, kind of another issue. As it goes along, it becomes a couple different ideas that didn't always click with me. Christopher Borgley used to work in advertising. Like when he was trying to make it as a director, he started making commercials, and that was a very successful avenue for him. And so that stuff feels very lived in because he clearly did live it you know that that felt uniquely insightful about like how the the siren call of sprite as it were is a really powerful force for a person that wants to be an artist it's like wait a minute obama's gonna dream about me you know that's on the table (laughs) i love that it was sprite and not yes coke right (laughs) it's like this opportunity these opportunities don't come very often you know we gotta gotta seize on it but it's yeah it's not a first rate opportunity it's like a second string right well i think that's what christopher borgley was kind of going for of like 
I have to bend over backwards so I can direct a 30 second Sprite ad. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. That's the world that he's working in where it's like, you know, he's winning all of these awards. He talked about this. I read an interview that, that he did of like, they shower you with awards in the advertising world. Mm. Yeah, remember in Mad Men when Don Draper used to get the, I think yep. the Clio awards, is that what those were? Yep. Like it, it was always this big ceremony. He goes dressed up and is it's one of these industries where they shower you with so much love and attention so you don't go running for Hollywood. You know what I mean? It's this thing where like industry people are very complimentary of other industry people. And it can become this like closed ecosystem where it's like, what exactly are we fucking doing here? You know, this is not what we got into this business to do. But like, I'm so excited that Sprite wants to be featured in their dream ad. I guess, yeah, we should also talk about this random sort of interjection of an idea that wasn't fully thought through that comes into the movie, which is this idea of dream ads. You know, after the Paul phenomenon is sort of winding down, they talk about how he's discovered that the collective subconscious is a real thing. And now we can begin advertising to people in their dreams. Right. And we cut to all these young, hot influencer kids don't bury the lead my friend yeah. don't bury the lead you're forgetting the hottest one of them all come on nick <laughs> don't be like oh a bunch of these youngins show up go for it cousin greg shows up in the movie <laughs> we get a cousin greg cameo for 30 seconds nicholas braun i don't even know what the character's name is in this movie as far as i'm concerned it's greg from from succession yeah, well it's, he's it's playing greg, greg. yeah greg. <laughs> that's who it is no you imagine that's what happened when waystar royko sold or whatever you know like, dream yeah. people yeah. <laughs> this movie could exist in the same universe as uh, succession yeah as much as i loved witnessing greg in the movie <laughs> Just I, lumbering into the film in the eleventh hour. It was amazing. It was a. It was. It's so weird to say. It's kind of my favorite part of the movie. Oh yeah, I mean it's great. Like him. Yeah. But the idea of what they're advertising and the the movie going to this direction. The more I thought about it, the more I really dislike it. Why? It's just not what the movie was to me. It's like, it, okay, there's a, a capitalist satire. Yeah, it's like now we're off to a completely different topic. Like it, it's a waste of time. It's a, it's huge waste, especially at this point in the movie. All it's, of a sudden, we're doing RoboCop ads. Yeah, you know, I, the, yeah it's it's, it's a sci-fi movie all of a sudden, and again, it spends about fifteen minutes on the idea, and then the movie ends. I consider it a half-baked idea. Yes, it wasn't explored to the degree that it should have been, and therefore, it shouldn't have been explored at all. Well, I guess it's the moment in the movie when capitalism and this lust for fame kind of intersect. And maybe that's what we're responding to here because Cage is not really in pursuit of money during this movie. No. It's not really a movie about money. I mean, obviously Michael Sarah's PR agency is interested in exploiting him for a quick buck. Uh, you know, and this is the thing about like viral marketing. Like you hear about some of these influencers and their ways of earning cash and a lot of them are like, yeah, we have two billion followers on Instagram and we don't make anything off of it, you know? A lot of this is sort of the empty pursuit of fame for fame's sake. Mm -hmm. And we hope maybe one day we can parlay that into, I get an acting job on like a soap opera or something. But it's like, how much money is the friggin' that motherfucker is not real lady making off of that? <laughs> like, I, don't you see her everywhere now? She's doing all these interviews. It's like, what? what's your deal here, lady? If you go back to viewing this as less a commentary on fame and cancel culture and more a cautionary tale against seeking fame, I can see how you want to throw this in to be like, these people are going to exploit you for money. But it's still, it does feel like a sudden shift in tone, in theme, and it kind of takes you out of the movie. And it starts explaining the logic too. And, and yeah, yes. And it also makes it less of a personal film. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing behind the algorithm is the thing. If this movie is a metaphor for like a social media app, right? Like him appearing in dreams is like part of what makes this movie interesting in the first hour is how esoteric the idea is and how like we don't know exactly how this works. And frankly, we're not really ever told why he started entering people's dreams so randomly. Right. Never given that answer, which I right. kind of like. Yeah. Well, I mean, like. That's the point. Why did right? Ken Bone go viral yeah. at that debate? Because he had a funny sweater. Like you know, <laughs> a lot of these things are kind of confusing. Mm -hmm. You know, why is the Shiba Inu dog a meme? Like I don't know. You can't really put your finger on. Like why is the Rickroll funny? You have no control over it. Like that's the thing. But but also like collectively we know that we're interested, but we don't know why. Like we don't really know why we're dreaming about memes. You know, and they don't know why they're dreaming about Nick Cage. Yeah, we open up with him 
as we said, a college professor. He confronts a former college classmate, I guess, back when he was in school, who is writing a book. Or, or she's writing, not a book, she's writing um, an article. She's getting published in Nature. And so he he meets her in a restaurant and he basically confronts her and says, like, you're not using my work that I did in college for your paper, right? And she goes, no, no. And he starts begging her <laughs> to uh, cite him. And uh, so we kind of are introduced to him as this kind of pathetic man past his prime. Objectively, I guess he's kind of a bad guy because he does more bad things than good things in the movie. But like he's sympathetic. You can see the good in him. You can see that he's not a, a bad human being. He's, he just, not, he's not anything. No, but yeah. He's I, not anything. He's just a he's guy. He's just kind of pathetic, right? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's pathetic. And Cage plays him in this very nasally it reminded me, of course, of his character from Adaptation. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's- There's a diminutive kind of quality to the guy, yeah. I think. And, you know, you look at him as this, not really even a sad puppy dog, just this yeah. thing that's kind of getting like, by. Yeah. 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 Like, well, mean, he's like groveling yeah, yeah. right in front of this woman. Please, I, I need this. Include me in your paper. <laughs> it's like really pathetic. Like it is... And that is our real first impression of this guy. It is. Yeah, it's the dog at the pound that you don't want to take home. Yeah. And yeah. I don't it's really not, know why. He's not just, sick either, yeah. No, yeah, he's not sick. It's just like, you know, kids, what do you think about this one? Yeah, like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe the next one. Yeah, yeah no, he's not like violent. He's not a pit bull or anything. He's just kind of like, oh, just, you know. He's got like a scar on his nose. I'm it's like, sure it's a fine on. dog, but we'd like a better dog. Yeah, can <laughs> we do a, a little more? It's a terrible thing he to say. He technically checks all the boxes, except yeah, yeah. for the mystery box that we can't quite define. <laughs> <laughs> There's just one that extra. That dog has bad vibes. Yeah, it is. Has bad yeah. vibes, that's right. You ever see just a bad vibe dog? That is a bad vibe dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so he's teaching at class, and all the students are sort of uninterested in what he's teaching about. Nobody really cares. Like I said, this guy, he's a PhD. I mean, to have a PhD is a impressive thing, but nobody cares. Nobody cares about him. And he feels the world has kind of uh, shunned him or he feels like he's deserved more. We begin to hear kind of whispering and grumbling in the background of people mentioning something about dreams and Paul and seeing Paul. And it slowly becomes more and more apparent that random people are dreaming about him at night. And in all of these dreams, all he does is stand there. And violent things are happening to these people. <laughs> Horrible things are happening to these people. And he just really, stands there watching. Yeah, there's like a zombie that eats a guy in one scene. And like, yeah, <laughs> he's just hanging. Yeah, I love this image. This, oh, it's the best. The beginning of the movie is where it's really working for me. And I'm just, yeah. that, mm-hmm. that that never gets old. This, again, I think even just a regular like national treasure look in the cage would be weird enough. But Nick Cage looking like this, right, <laughs> in his sweater and everything, and all bald. It's just not doing anything. Yes, and he does kind of like a Bigfoot walk every time he comes in. <laughs> so it is kind of like this grainy, like who is that guy in my dream? Like guy? why is you know just that that guy, <laughs> just this unassuming, the unassuming man. You know, I know talking about dreams is not very good podcast fodder, um, but did this depiction of dreaming move the needle for you guys? Did did it did it read as true? <sighs> Let me ask you something. When you dream, you always are looking through your own eyes, right? You're not you don't ever dream from the third person. Oh no, I dream from the third person. I have I dream from the third person. I have never dreamt from the third person once in my entire life. I had one recurring dream as a kid from the third person where I would be dreaming and I would see myself sleeping in bed and then I would see myself begin floating out of the bed and floating out of my room and down the stairs. That's the only third person dream I've ever had. Every other one is from first person perspective. So I find that hard to portray in film. Yeah, dreams dreams are tough. I've been different people in my dreams. I haven't been me. It's been all of a sudden I look down and I'm, you know. Who are cl- you really? Adam? I mean, that's, well, this is really quite, that's really the, the question of life, isn't well, it? Yeah, let's do some who, Carl Jung right now. Who am I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who exactly are you? <laughs> but I've, I've also, I do memories in the third person too. We've talked about this. Really? Yeah, I remember things in the third person. That's fucking weird. Yeah, like I'll have memories of myself. That's so weird. And it'll be like a bird's eye view security camera essentially in the corner watching of the room yourself. watching myself do whatever I'm doing. Yeah. It's because you watch too many movies or is it because you're so insecure? Well, <laughs> guilty as charged on both counts, I suppose. But I don't know what this has to do with my memories. That's strange. <laughs> Yeah, I did like how grounded these dreams were, though. 
Because usually when you're dreaming, you're not fucking in the clouds or you're not Superman. Like you are just sort of walking around and it's a little off. And that's what all of these dreams are. They're a little off. And that includes Cage being in them. I, I usually like I don't really dream about like the plots of movies or anything. You know, usually my memories are based on life. Usually they're in locations that you've been to before. That's one theory that people have, right? Is that you never see a face in a dream that you have not actually encountered, right? I don't believe that, by the way. If I see a stranger in my dream, I highly doubt that my brain subconsciously remembered somebody's face. Like, bullshit. You can make up a face. You can make up a face, you think? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, I'm sure you fucking can. If people don't understand dreams very well though dude that's that's a common blind spot with science in general is that we still don't really get dreams very well how crazy is it though that we have this thing where like we go to bed and our body shuts down and like a movie starts playing for us like it's kind of crazy <laughs> it is awesome though not explainable it's pretty cool you think we're making up face i don't think we're making up faces i don't know an artist can draw a human being that they've never seen before they can just draw a face like that's a good point, Nick. You got me on It's that. fucking bullshit, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very specific type of dream that they're using. They're using the very, like, you know, mundane living room dreams that are, like, 30 seconds long, and then they, they go away. Which, you know, I, I... How many of your dreams are not like that? Oh, they're very random, dude. I mean, they could be that, or they could be me hopping around cities and shit like that. Or being in like a sewer naked is another random thing. Yeah, I've I've had the the vanilla sky thing running around. Um, uh, I think maybe it was just because I watched Vanilla Sky, but I had Times Square empty. Tim, Times Square empty. Uh, being swallowed up by couches is a weird one for me. Oh. That's one. But occasionally you get one where you're just sitting down on your couch or your bed or whatever, and then just some rando shows up, <laughs> and I don't even know what I'm talking about with that person. And then they do one thing weird, like they touch my head or something, and then the dream ends, like shit like that. I'm like, okay, I've kind of experienced this. I'm still a little hung up on you naked in a sewer, but I maybe yeah. we'll go and address that another day. I mean, it's really a metaphor for how Adam likes to swim in his own filth, you know? <laughs> it's true. It really is. It's a metaphor for this podcast. He's drowning in shit. <laughs> That's what this is for me. Yeah. I, gotta, I gotta get the fuck out of here. Fully exposed, wake, drowning in garbage. Wake me up, people. <laughs> If you can hear me out there, <laughs> please let me out. <laughs> All of my dreams are, are kind of like these. There's a, a very specific one where at, towards the end of the movie, Nick Cage is encountering a home invader and he starts punching the invader and the punches don't land. Something like it's a very like soft kind of like powerlessness. I still have a lot of dreams like that, but I had a lot of them when I was a kid. Someone is attacking you or a thing is attacking you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a very vivid memory of a T-Rex attacking me. And me oh, like I've had those too. Powerless to run away from it. Yeah. And he, like his name was Barney. I remember this dream vividly. I had it when I was like five and I can't get it out of my Well, head. you know what kind of dinosaur Barney is. It's a T-Rex. No, I'm not talking about purple Barney. I'm talking about a giant T-Rex. <laughs> yeah. But his name was Barney. In the dream. Yeah. The name In the dream. Okay. Because he was right. like, here comes Barney. That's how I knew his name was Barney. <laughs> was he purple by chance? That's I don't great. think he was purple. I don't remember what his color was, though. But I remember he was quite large. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of ready to eat me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Did he by chance look like a man in a suit? <laughs> <laughs> in a dinosaur costume. But that that sort of idea of like you being in a dream and you're powerless to stop this force that's coming out. Oh, yeah. That's a collective thing. And like, you know, although we don't necessarily have a collective dream about a single person, the idea of the collective lived experience is, I think, a real phenomenon that I buy. Mm -hmm. I buy that hook, line and sinker. Yeah, there are certain common types of dreams that like most people will, or a lot of people will experience that just. Like people waking up in the middle of the night with like a sleep paralysis and they see like a shadowy figure of a man in a big hat. You hear that one all the time. Oh, yeah. And it's like, why do so many people experience that same weird random experience? It's fascinating. So it, there's something interesting there. But this movie immediately stops being interested in exploring that. I do think, yeah, the fascination of like the effect and sensation of these dreams. Yeah, that that's definitely abandoned for the fame angle. and Right, because it, it uses that really interesting idea of this collective subconscious, but then it just pivots towards how that relates to the mass psychosis of memeability. 
Well, I think p- putting this very like heady spiritual idea in the grimy modern context is what this director was going for. And I'm not sure that always works. I wonder if I would have enjoyed the more Lynchian spiritual, just like bizarro version of this movie, as opposed to the one that insists on reminding you that it was made in 2023. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder like if the more timeless it is, maybe the better it works, but I don't know. I mean, at the same time, then it's just a completely different movie. Yeah. So. You know, my feelings on a movie that sort of trap itself in an era. Right. I don't think it's that stuck in 20. 20- there's, there's movies that only belong in like one year and should never be viewed outside that year again. This isn't quite that intense, yeah. but there's a lot of it there. No question. Yeah. So yeah, so shortly after he begins appearing in everybody's dreams, like we talked about, he he becomes a celebrity as a lot of people talk to each other and they get a picture of him on Facebook and people all realize you're the guy <laughs> gets interviewed on the news, 15 seconds of fame, talks to the ad agency. And he's trying to now, how do I take this opportunity that life has given me and pivot it towards what I want, which is to write a book and be seen and respected for my work doesn't work for him uh, because why would it? Right. <laughs> This guy, he keeps saying that he wants like recognition for his book, but this guy hasn't written a book. No, right. there's no book. Yeah. Right. You know, he's kind of the a book hack. is yeah. an idea. Yeah. It's not a book. He has no, no words on paper. The classic idea of like that friend that says he's an author and he hasn't written a fucking yep. book yet. You exactly. know? Like, right. Yeah. He's just constantly writing the same book. Yep. And as this begins uh, collapsing and he's realizing he's not going to be able to pivot this towards what he wants. There's, he reaches a certain stage of acceptance where he's going to start to buy into, well, I'll take what I can get. Right around that moment is when it all starts falling apart, right? Yeah. Can we talk about the sex scene first? <laughs> I think that actually is the moment where it starts falling apart. I agree. It, this is kind of where it all starts to plummet. I think there's an interpretation here, okay? Shortly thereafter, all of the people's dreams begin to pivot towards him doing horrible, violent things to them. Right. In another montage that I just get a, a huge tickle out of. I love it. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's fantastic. It is funny. I love the image of his daughter when he enters through the closet and he starts <laughs> he swinging it. his arms violently towards her. It's like and I'm like, room. where the hell did you get that, Kate? I mean, it's just amazing shit. He looks like a evil nutcracker from like a, a yeah, yeah, exactly. A ballet. Like, That's one of those great moments where you're like, yeah, it, how could you ever call Nick Cage a bad actor? Because you know that was entirely him. There's, yeah, exactly. You, you can't, you can't right. direct that. That was just him. Exactly. Doing that, yeah. Where, what part of your being do you summon that spirit yeah. from? It's crazy. It's great. Yeah. So one of the women working at the ad company that's trying to get him on Sprite ads, <laughs> she's been having dreams about him and they go out for a drink and she tells him, yeah, my dreams have been crazy. Right. <laughs> and, and he's like, what, do I just do nothing? And she goes, no, we fucked. <laughs> this <lot>. is great. <laughs> exact verbatim. And he's like, uh, and then she begins describing it. I think this is the moment where his people start dreaming of him in a violent way. And I think this woman is just the anomaly because right. this is a rape scene that she begins to like halfway through her dream. That's what this is. Like, can we be clear in her dream? He just barges into her house and she says, please don't hurt me. Who are you? Don't come any closer. Mm. And then all of a sudden she's into it. Like that's her dream. <laughs> it's really funny. It's amazing. <laughs> Dylan Galula plays this woman. And she's in the ad and she's kind of like biting her lip the entire oh, time. Yeah. And you can tell where this is going immediately. Y- yes. Yeah. Uh, she's wonderful in this role. She was in this uh, movie Shithouse from a couple years ago that Adam and I are quite fond of. Very good movie. And she's also in, I think, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She plays a pretty prominent role in that show, I think. And she is great in this. Um, that scene is something else. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that that is the first violent thing he does, and it just so happens that she's fucked up enough that she interprets it as a positive thing. Oh, oh, a, oh interesting. No, a sudden interesting. Shift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I took this as the first shift of him doing something violent in a dream, but just this woman was fucked up and was like, yes, good. So, okay, let, let's, yeah, okay. Okay, let's try That's to unpack fair. this for a second here. So do we think that Nick Cage's presence in these dreams is a consequence of an overarching supernatural force that is like incepting his image into these people's dreams or do you think that this comes about from again this Jungian idea that all dreams are an expression of the subconscious because I think that it's the latter as the collective consciousness about his celebrity changes that's when his images in the dreams change 
I think it's a little of both, but I think the movie explicitly tells you it's the first one. With with the sci-fi kind of gadgety explanation. With the sci-fi, you're getting ads in your dreams and shit. The movie explicitly says the collective consciousness is a real thing. But it is clear that as people learn about this phenomenon of Nick Cage appearing in dreams, then more people experience it. Well, there's that temptation too when things start to get become really famous and very, you know, ubiquitous that we kind of have this weird desire to start sort of tearing it down and eventually discarding it. And that's, you know, certainly a, a reflection of what happens here too. Yeah, no, I think, meaning, I think he starts appearing violently as the audience begins to turn on him in real life. Yes, exactly. Like, you know, like I, I think it's our desire collectively to tear down these like icons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, do you think it's more reflective on his state of being at the time i was thinking about i don't that, think he has anything to do with it no yeah that's the thing i think he, i don't think his image in these dreams has anything to do with him as i think it is all our projection of the image i mean he's a complete victim loser i mean there's even a little bit of job there at times which is kind of weird yeah. i mean if that were true i mean i still think like the dreams would have been pretty violent from the get-go because he's not a happy guy at, at all and things have not been going no, his way pretty, for years he's and years. unremarkable at the start and towards the end he really starts losing it i mean you're saying that his dream character changes as his character yeah, yeah, changes yeah. which that, I don't. that's what you're saying I, I mean i kind of think his character changes in reaction to the dream character changing more than the other way but i wonder if the intent was i think he's just a passenger yeah I think he's just a passenger to whatever's happening in these people's dreams. And I think he's hopeless to stop it. I think yeah, that's an it's express It's like Pepe purpose. the Frog. It's that yeah, same yeah, idea. Yeah, like yeah. Pepe the Frog started as like this kid's character or whatever. Oh my God. Now see, that's the frustrating. Now that you've brought that up, man, that movie's so much fucking better. The documentary. Have you seen that movie? No, no. Oh, it's so much better than this movie. Wow. All, it's all good, man. Holy cow. Called? It's like the same movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, but yeah, it's that idea of like this thing gets co-opted. For no right. reason. For no, for yeah, no, for no good reason. reason. Yeah. And now Pepe, like the artist that created Pepe can't be like, hey, can I get my meme back? Yeah. I mean, it's just too late. It's not even a meme. Pepe the Frog's like a wholesome comic book character that's turned into like this, the most horrible thing on the internet. Right, right. (laughs) You know, so it's a, I think it's a similar kind of idea where now obviously he helps fan the flames by seeking out the fame. Yes. Right. Like he doesn't help matters by, you know, not remaining anonymous. But yeah, I think what's happening is that it's the natural arc of celebrity. I mean, at least from this director's point of view, that's how he sees the life cycle of fame inevitably. There's like everybody's going to get canceled. Everybody's going to have to issue a, a notes app apology at some point. Everybody's going to have to do this. Well, there's definitely the argument to be made. If had he remained anonymous, maybe the dreams just would have been a, a series of him standing there raking leaves and nothing right. else. Or more likely they would have just gone away. Or, Possibly. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah, they would have gone away. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, it's sex dream. We've got to go back to this though. Uh, yeah, go ahead and describe it, Nico. <laughs> Don't mind if I do. You've had, he's had this dream many times before. Is that it? <laughs> With Nick Cage. <laughs> oh, okay. well, yeah, I was trying to decide which character you are in the dream and which one's worse. <laughs> so in her dream, Cage is standing in the corner of the room. It's like fucking hereditary. <laughs> right. It's like you just see the faint outline of a man. Yeah, yeah. The girl is like, who's there? Who's there? Who's there? And he slowly emerges from the corner and then begins having his way with her. Grabs Mm -hmm. her by the throat and, you know, starts touching her and all this stuff, right? Her dialogue's quite funny (laughs) at a certain point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who are you? What are you doing here? Go away. I'm so wet. (laughs) (laughs) It does on a dime. The way a dream would. The way a dream would. But, yeah, she goes from please don't hurt me to I'm so wet and it's the funniest thing in the whole film by like 3,000 miles it is hilarious I have to give the movie this though I think part of the reason why a lot of these bits are so funny is because the editing is very tight it knows exactly when to cut to emphasize the joke just perfectly it's a very well crafted movie I found it very well made Yeah. yeah all those moments they hit and then next part and it's just so funny you're right. It's a it's a very well made movie in all aspects. It's literally just like the theme and plot kind of aren't quite as punchy. And I guess some of the dialogue could be punchier too. But we do- we talked about that too. Yeah, we wish Charlie 
Kaufman. If Charlie Kaufman wrote this movie, it's a five-star smash hit. One of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, of course. He does this in his sleep. No pun yeah. intended, Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So Cage goes to recreate this dream. Well, she asks him to. Yes. Right. And he's very uncomfortable with the whole thing. But he's like, all right, I guess this is what But he's not so uncomfortable do. that he says no. Right. Do you think he was doing it because, A, he actually really wanted to and he wanted to reap the benefits of his fame? Or do you think he also just kind of doesn't know how to say no to people? Oh, I think it's I think it's more that. Yeah, I don't know. I think yeah. it, there's a little bit of both there. I do think there's a little bit of him that's at least curious about what happens if he steps into this role a little further, because I, I think of cheating on his wife. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> she actively talks about something being he would never do. No, I do. Th- I do think there's an element of that. that that's he's at least like, uh, I guess because he's famous, I guess I'll give it a try. But then it doesn't go well at all. It was never going to go, well. go well. No, it does not go well. No, it does not go well. It does not go well spectacularly it is like he steps into it into like a very naive way though it does kind of read both ways i think yes so he's in the corner of the room and he flips the light switch and he's got like his shoulders hunched over and i identified this in the theater and i haven't seen this in any criticisms anywhere online but he looked just like nosferatu yep in that moment yeah he did of course the the iconic (laughs) image of nosferatu in the doorway it looked exactly like that to me Uh uh-huh He's always trying to play the vampire. Always doing fucking vampire shit. Yeah, it looks like he's bald. Yeah. (laughs) And he comes towards her and he's very uncomfortable and he's like, all right, what do I do now? What do I do now? And, uh, you know, lets out a fart. (laughs) And you're like, okay, well, that's as bad as it can get, I'm sure. Oh, no, it can't. Uh, Because when she begins fondling with his nether regions... (laughs) She's like, hasn't even gotten the belt off yet. Yeah, no, right. Yeah, when I say that, I mean, literally, she's just going for the belt. Yeah, yeah. she's trying to take the belt off. And then a pre- premature ejaculate. And then a no, much no, louder and more gr- extended fart. Hold on. Yeah. He makes a grunt. And she goes, did you just come? And then he farts. And then he's like crying. <laughs> it's so pathetic. And then he just storms out of the apartment. Oh, man. That's such a terrible moment. It's like, <laughs> haven't we all been there? Oh, you know? God. I couldn't even come up with an uncomfortable moment as much as that. Like that is. And yeah, that's this is when the cancellations begin. You know, all these violent dreams and he's asked to take a leave of absence from the university and he's like, oh, your trauma is a trend. All these kids are traumatized. They're so triggered. And again, it's all this gesturing in the direction of a culture war commentary, but yeah. without really going anywhere. Can I, can I just ask? I know this is completely antithetical to the point of the movie. Did you buy it even in the context of the world that it's set up? That he would get canceled for appearing in people's dreams that way. I, it took me a minute to really get on board with it. Yeah. was It felt a little exaggerated, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, and I, I get that they're going for that, but even still. I, yeah, they're definitely trying to illustrate the point that you don't have to do anything to become famous and you don't have to do anything to get canceled. Absolutely, yeah. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Yeah. It, it is very easy to like get pissed off watching this where it's like he's not allowed to go to his daughter's play because some people are having dreams about him. Maybe it's the gymnasium scene. I just, I really didn't buy it. I the scene know. of the group therapy. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, I the, don't, this is a little too much for me. I was going to say then like all the students, they like begin like spray painting his car and they're like videotaping him and be like, get out of here, you suck. And it's like, can anybody really objectively, like in the in the logic of this movie, like why would anybody actually blame him? Right. Exactly. It is. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's kind of. It a, feels unbelievable. Yeah. There is a missing link there somewhere. One of the movies I was thinking about as a quote unquote cancel culture movie is The Hunt with Mads Mikkelsen, oh, which is a great movie. And that is another movie about a guy that did not do the thing that he was accused of doing and is still ostracized from his small village for doing it. But at least he was like a wrongly accused person. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like he was actually just wrongly accused. Yes. Whereas the people canceling him are not really accusing him of anything. No, I don't know what they're, yeah. Like, people acknowledge that it's not actually him in their dreams. He's not literally Freddy Krueger going into their dreams and doing these things. Exactly. It almost works a little better if he, like, accidentally hurts the woman 
before the, he starts to really yes. hit the downfall. Yes, yes, And you yes. plant the seed, and then like, oh, maybe there is something. He's actually dreams. a violent guy. Maybe, right. yeah. Maybe these dreams are yeah, more than just that. Yeah, they needed an accident. Yeah, yeah. A mistake. Yeah, like right. An and then mistake. it ends with an even greater act of aggression. Right. It's like, of course, look, there it is, you know? He hits someone with a car or whatever. Right, yeah, put that in there earlier. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. have something for there to be at least a credible accusation. Yes. You yes. know, but there's really no seed of anything. Well, and, and again, what we're describing is a way to make the characters and the plot feel more real, but that does take away from if you're trying to drill home, you don't have to do anything wrong, right? It takes away from that aspect yes, of the theme. Right. Yeah, so yeah, I understand. It's a understand. that's why I'm talking about they're threading a really fine needle. Yeah, here. no, he's talking about cancel culture as this cannibalistic Enti- force. Entity, yes, it's this thing that just exists and it latches on to people at random moments. And yeah, when you attach it to a real life event, it adds credibility, but also takes away from it. And you run into this problem of a guy making a movie that is like really in love with the idea more than he is the story, I think. Yeah, Yeah. there there you go, there's, right. I just think dramatically a lot of this stuff just doesn't really land, and maybe that's what we're bumping up against. It's like, yeah, yeah, great idea, but can you sell it dramatically? And Mm -hmm. not always, not here. Mm -hmm. There's actually a really good dinner scene. Dylan Baker plays like his old college buddy, and he, hosts all of these like very prestigious stuffy dinner parties with like very important people. And Nick Cage was never invited to them until this particular party. And everyone at the party cancels because they know he's going to be there. And they've been having these violent dreams about him, including Dylan Baker's wife, who was like severely traumatized at the dinner table, just at the sight of him. And the way this scene is shot, Adam and I turn to each other. We're like, 180 rule here, man. I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> I, I was, I literally was turning in my seat like yeah. like, like I'm having a panic attack. I'm like, oh my God, the 180 degree rule. Yeah, it's oh like my God. bringing me back to film school again. It's like, Jesus Christ. No, no, oh, make it stop. That's wrong. That's wrong. No. But I'm going to fail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure it was intentional. It is very, very much so. Very intentional. It is so jarring. Like everything is just off we should explain for the the non-losers in the crowd 180 (laughs) rule when two characters are having a conversation one character should always appear on the left side of the screen or the right side of the screen even if you're doing an over the shoulder shot if you're going to change the dynamics of where they're standing it better have a very significant storytelling purpose Mm -hmm. or else it's just purely disorienting yep if you were watching the movie but it was on a stage Right. You can't suddenly be filming from backstage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or basketball games, right? Like, oh, yeah, or football games. Like, they don't just suddenly go to the other side of the field when you're watching the right. Because if you do that, it's jarring to the eye and it takes you out of place. And you go where the hell? Like, you can move ten feet over in either direction as long as you're staying where you're watching it from the audience. You can no, but you can also go circularly. You just can't break the hundred degrees. You can't, so right. don't imagine right. it like a straight line. Imagine it like a half circle. Yeah. Whereas the camera can move anywhere within that half circle, you just can't go on the other side of it. Yep. And this right. this scene is constantly knocking down in theater the proscenium arch. You can't go to the background and then looking at the audience or anything like that. Yeah. Right. It's really disorienting in this right. scene. And if you went to film school and then you went on to watch movies for the rest of your life, as we have done, we are cursed with this power where we don't stop seeing it. Yes. So whenever I see the 180 rule broken for an innocuous reason, even in a commercial. It drives me crazy. So like it's it's one of those things where like if a scene is doing it for a specific purpose, yeah, it makes our skin crawl in the theater. And that's what was happening to Adam and I. I mean, it's it is an uncomfortable scene where it's like everything is just kind of off. It's not like they're like changing like color gels per character. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, that yeah. over the top. It's just like there's just something wrong here, guys. Why is there something wrong here? Right. And doing that, I think it's a perfect use of that tool. Right. I, I actually really liked it. Yeah. 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 He ends up getting canceled for this and he rejects it because he knows he didn't do anything wrong. But in rejecting it, he makes things worse. He eventually caves and does an apology, but his apology is insincere. No, I thought the apology was sincere. It's incredibly sincere. Yeah, but, um, it's funny because it's like, oh, the cancel culture crowd, they demand the apology. And then once you apologize, it's not good enough. Yeah, anyways, right. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And to the point that even his wife is like, it's embarrassing being married to you. And they end up getting the divorce. Right. All because he apologized like she asked him to, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And she ends up, by the way, having an uh, affair or maybe not, they, I think there's what? like some early courting going on with. Yeah. The yeah. It's implied, but unclear. Yeah. yeah. Her coworker and her begin hanging out. He, when he goes to the play that he wasn't supposed to go to, her coworker is there with her. Right. We did miss one little detail where the re- part of the reason he is doing the apology is because he was attacked in a dream of his own by himself. Right. Himself, and one yeah. of the funniest sight gags in the movie for me, 
get shot by an arrow. <laughs> it's so good. Adam turned to me. He goes, "Nothing funnier than an arrow." <laughs> it's well, it's true because you have like a two foot long shaft sticking out of your body, <laughs> and every way you run. turn it because it's so long, it just exaggerates all of your movements. Exactly. It's you know what I mean. It's perhaps Steve Martin's greatest contribution to comedy is the yeah. little hat with the arrow going through his head. <laughs> Impaling via bow and arrow is a hilarious thing. There's something about like just this bullet spear flying through the air. Like, right. like when we were talking about Bachelor Party uh, a couple of weeks ago, there's an arrow gag in that. It's one of the funniest things of the movie to me. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's silent. Yeah. Is the thing about a bow and arrow. It's like, uh, oh, right. <laughs> it's also like who uses a bow and arrow for anything anymore? <laughs> you know, why would you just shoot me with a gun? You weirdo. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that would freak to be perfectly honest someone's coming at me with a bow and arrow I'd be like what the fuck are you doing man that'd freak me I out. think Sebastian Maniscalco has a bit about this he does. doesn't he yes yeah, he, he totally does, does. Yeah. that's right yeah <laughs> about my buddy got a bow and arrow to protect himself against intruders <laughs> I'm so <laughs> Best. you pull uh, out the quiver and get <laughs> quiver you gotta fucking string your bow with you. <laughs> it's great stuff. Yeah, so he does this thing where he has to go to Europe, right? Because, you know, that's what Woody Allen goes to Europe or whatever. All these, Roman Polanski, I mean, it's a little more than canceled, I guess. He's a fugitive. <laughs> but uh, you go to Europe because France likes all the canceled people over there. They have, you know, a finer taste in art. Oh, I was trying to think. I was like, what did I watch recently that also did that? It was, um,. The morning show on Apple TV. Steve oh, yeah. Carell's character, he goes to Europe he after does? he gets canceled. Yeah. <laughs> so he has to go back to Europe to publish his book. He wants to name the book Dream Scenario. It gets changed as the last second to what is it? The Man in Your Nightmares or something? The Man, man of Your no, Nightmares. I, I am your nightmare. And pictures of him wearing like a Freddy Krueger knife glove. <laughs> and, like, and he gets a copy of the book and it's soft cover and like super fucking thin mm -hmm. and like the covers like really shittily thrown together in Photoshop. I can't tell you how many books like that I've seen. Like you ever like meet somebody and they're like, yeah, I wrote a book. You want a copy? I'm like, sure. And they reach into their trunk and it's like a pamphlet. I love the Jason Alexander. It's not really much of a book on acting. It's just kind of a pamphlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this is. It's like all those like self-published books that like your aunt wrote 30 years ago they all look exactly like that i'm like oh god this is a level of pathetic i don't even want to think about <laughs> my great-grandfather wrote a book that's not bad actually but it's similarly small right yeah <laughs> it's always yeah. <laughs> but like i just like increase like the spacing you know get the you know you make it seem put a greater bigger. indent in there to stretch that shit out <laughs> it's just it the look of it being so flat and you know <laughs> I've looked at self-published books, by the way, and it's like the way people format their own books as opposed to the way publishers format books like the, you can just tell when you look at it. Oh, this is self-published. And it's like it's kind of like breaking the 180 rule. It's kind of jarring to read a book <laughs> right. like that. It just doesn't look right, but you can't quite place it. It's like, is it the font? Is it? Oh, well, it's a lot of time. It is the font. You know, they're using like a sans serif font and it's like, this is a book. What are you doing? Like, you but also like the way they do the tabs or like the margins are too yeah, wide. Right, or, right. There's right. always something. Might as well put fucking wingdings in there, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this is the final scene. Oh. He gets a hold of one of those bracelets that puts ads in your dreams. One of the cousin Greg bracelets. <laughs> and through deep focus and concentration, he's able to get into his ex-wife's dreams. And earlier in the movie, she made a comment when they were sort of in the heat of passion. They were, you know, she was like, why aren't you in my dreams? Everybody else is dreaming about you. And they talk like sexy. And <laughs> Gage is like, all right, what's your one fantasy that you want me to fulfill in your dreams? And she's like, I don't know. You wear the talking heads, David Byrne suit and rescue me from a fire. <laughs> and he's like, really? That's it? David Byrne? And so at the end of the movie, City of Dreams, the talking head song which, as you pointed out, is the same song that plays during the closing credits of True Stories.
she uh, gets rescued by him in her dream. And that's the movie. He's got the David Byrne suit on. And that's, I think, for my money, I wish more movies ended like that. With the David Byrne suit? Yes. City of Dreams does, is not featured on the Stop Making Sense live album, which is where he wears the suit. So they, they got their talking heads facts very wrong. Well, I believe that was afterwards. Yes. True Stories came out after. It did. Uh, yeah. It did, it did. Stop Making Sense. Yes. Um, I suppose, yeah, they are kind of playing around with the history there. That's true. Adam, you are correct. Yeah. Uh, tremendous cage performance. I would in agree. a movie yes. that yeah, we didn't talk about that nearly enough. Has some stuff going for it, but ultimately, I think falls a little short of what we wanted. Mm-hmm. The guy that never falls short's fucking cage, though, and it's so weird now that he is like quality control for movies because for years it was like he only made complete dog shit. You have no idea what you're getting. True. Now it's like there's a base level of enjoyment you get every time he's on screen. True. And he's amazing in this movie. He is amazing. Yeah. I also just want to say again with uh cousin Greg and Michael Sarah in the same movie. Too much I, for I feel you. like we kinda are we already covered that ground with Michael Sarah. I don't know if we also needed Cousin Greg. Well, Nicholas Braun is kind of like the Zoomer Michael Sarah. Oh, I see. You know, he's kind of You're like not the, wrong. Yeah, for the next generation. It just it felt a little weird to have like Nick Cage playing this dopey loser, and then we have Michael Sarah, and then we have <laughs> Nicholas Braun. It's like, all right, can we have like somebody cool for yeah, a second? Can we have someone cool. <laughs> can, I, can I see one cool guy? Like, uh, uh, yeah, no, um, Nick, uh, the, the last thing I do want to say is that Cage recently did an interview promoting this movie where he said that he's considering retiring from movie making. Ooh, I don't think that's true. That's what he said. He said, I actually wanted to go out on dream scenario because I thought it was a pretty good high note, but I have other contracts for other things. And he said, after maybe three or four movies, I'm going to do TV. TV. That's oh, wow. Okay. Ooh. I'm going to do TV. Six seasons of Cage, he man. Said, oh, man. You know what he said? He said, my kids made me watch Breaking Bad. And I was like, whoa, this show's good. I should start doing TV. Oh, wow. I, I just love the fact that this guy is like 20 years late on everything. That's it's funny. like yeah, 20 years late on like acting style. And now he's like <laughs> 20 years later. He's like, oh, wow. TV's better than movies now? I didn't even know. I didn't know that's where all the good things were happening. Oh, Cage. And um, so he's maybe going to do some TV. And what I say is, boo, no, stick with movies. Fuck that. Let him do a show. Let's, let's see how it goes. Let's try it. This guy was born to be in the cinema. He is a big screen actor. Yes, he is. I don't want to so? watch him on my iPhone, you know, doing <laughs> eight episodes of True you Detective. Always, okay, hold on. No, fuck off. You always say, <laughs> on my iPhone. That's your fault if you're watching <laughs> shit on your fucking iPhone. That's what are you talking about? <laughs> Put it on your fucking big screen TV at home with your surround sound system. Turn the lights off. <laughs> Microwave some butter popcorn so you get the smell in the room. What the fuck, dude? I need him in a cinema. He was someone that is, I mean, at his core is in love with the cinematic experience. The fact yes. that it goes back to silent cinema for yes. him. German expressionist cinema, no, no I don't less. think he's going to stay away from movies no matter what the guy says. I don't believe him is my point. Yeah, I don't believe that he has the financial restraint to be able no. to afford it, frankly. I don't but. mind him doing a show. I don't mind him doing a season of a show. What I don't want him doing is like a season of like the here's how Uber was formed. Like all of like the like recent history biopics about Silicon Valley guys. What if he does the National Treasure TV show with? Uh, no, fuck no. that. No. no. What's the matter with you? No, but then you never get any more National Treasure movies. I just watched six episodes of a Disney Plus show for this podcast, yeah. Nick. Don't start with me. Yeah. I don't want him on a Disney Plus. What are you, crazy? We need Disney Plus to die. We need it to die. Oh, I triggered you. I triggered you. All right. Uh, we are going to record next week's podcast right now. It is the continuation <laughs> of the Santathon. Because they made a second season of the Santa Clauses for some godforsaken reason. Yep. And that will be coming for your Christmas episode next week here on the feed. So we love you. And we'll see you then. Yep. And bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.